Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. Uh, thank you for joining us in Harrisburg this evening. We're so pleased to have you here at the Scholar for a fascinating presentation. Um, some quick customary housekeeping to go over as always. Uh, please take an events newsletter up at the front counter. Um, we have many free author events throughout the year and we'd love to see you back at the store. We're very present on social media and our website where we keep everything updated, so check out the other authors and come on back for an event. Tonight, I have the honor of introducing our speaker here this evening, Casey Sepp. Casey is a writer from the Eastern Shore of Maryland. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The New Republic, among many other publications. She has a degree from Harvard College and a master's in philosophy from the University of Oxford, where she studied as a Rhodes Scholar. Her first book is the book we are all here for tonight. It is called Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. Not only is it an instant New York Times bestseller, not only is it WITF's pick of the month, but it has, been the, it has been the talk of the town among booksellers, librarians, scholars, teachers, and readers of all ages who have ever interacted with To Kill a Mockingbird. The book has received near universal widespread acclaim. Time calls the book a marvel. People calls it brilliant. And O Magazine calls Furious Hours an enthralling work of narrative nonfiction. And of course, we must end the introduction with the final and best blurb from the one and only Michael Lewis, who says Furious Hours goes from being a superbly written true crime story to the sort of story that even Harper Lee would have been proud to write. On that note, please join me in welcoming Casey Sepp to the stage. Thanks so much, Alex and Midtown Scholar, for having me. If you haven't already clocked on, I'm so sorry for those of you um, <clears throat> who aren't lucky enough to have a family as loving as mine, because you could probably tell there are some of them here, and that's why they're being noisy, um, which, you know, I'm, I'm grateful they're here because it allows me to um, beg you not to ask me questions that are too hard at the end because you'll embarrass me in front of my family, and they'll report back to my parents. Um, yeah, you, you guys might get, you know, event unplugged, be warned. But um, in any event, it's, it's an honor to be here. And um, I, I have not been to Midtown Scholar before, but I'm one of the people who's encountered the shop on social media. And it's such a tremendous place and a wonderful event space and truly an asset to the community. And I'd be remiss if I didn't start the talk by um, saying I, I hope that you'll purchase a copy of the book, if you do, from the shop. Um, it's, it's a day and age where... There are many other places to buy books, but buying them from an independent bookstore is truly a gracious way to support the community and um, to make sure that authors like me have spaces to go and read at and that um, schools and libraries and things like that get the assets of the store. So um, I don't want to spend too much time evangelizing because I'm about to tell you about a really interesting evangelist, the Reverend Willie Maxwell. Um, and I, I like to start with the Reverend, if you don't know anything about the book and you're only in it for Harper Lee, I should warn you that um, she appears very early and then disappears as she was wont to do. And so if, if you're in it for Harper Lee, be patient because the first two thirds of the book is devoted to two other characters. And without them, I, I would not have written this book. Without them, it would just be another biography of Harper Lee, but with them, it's a lot of other genres, too, and um, I like to start with the Reverend because without him there would truly be no Maxwell case, and the Reverend was a um, man born in 1925 in, in a small town in Alabama, not far from Lake Martin, and if you open the book, there's a map there, and you can see this, this part of eastern Alabama where he was born, and um, I like to read a little from his section. It starts kind of in, just to give you a sense of time and place. So we're in eastern Alabama. We're in Coosa County, one of the most rural counties in Alabama. And I like to read from this passage that's a few chapters into the book. It's 1972. And the reverend who um, had been married for 20 years in, in kind of an unremarkable marriage and leading a um, typical life for a man of his time and place. He had served in the army, come back to Coosa County, had had a fairly distinguished service career. But there being not many opportunities for African-Americans there, he returned home and went to work for one of the cotton mills that had made his uniform when he was serving in World War II. And on the side of that, he did some pulp wooding. And on the side of that, he worked at a rock quarry. And on the side of all of that, he did what he was most known for, which is preaching. And he was ordained in the Baptist church, and he was well regarded as a minister, which is why it was so shocking when his first wife was found murdered and he was accused of her murder. Now, he was acquitted for that 
um, in kind of a shocking turn of events because the police thought they had an open and shut case, but their star witness changed her testimony. And I'm about to read to you from a passage. So that murder took place in 1970. By 1972, you know, the police who had wondered why that witness had changed her testimony and the neighbors who had wondered how the reverend had gotten away with any of this since it was so clear he had murdered his wife, all of those people arrived at a different theory of events, not just that he was lucky, but that he had been able to engineer the circumstances by which he was acquitted, by which that state's witness became the second Mrs. Maxwell, so that was why she had changed her testimony. Um, she was able to marry the reverend because her husband had also died under similar circumstances. And the folks around this part of Alabama came up with a, a theory, which if you haven't read the book, um, I'm not being coy, you'll know in the first clause of what I'm about to read you. Um, the theory was that the reverend was a voodoo priest. And that was why he had been able to engineer circumstances um, in ways that were so advantageous to him. And um, so this is 1972. His first wife was found murdered. The neighbor was found dead under similar circumstances. And here we are trying to imagine what it was like for the, the friends and neighbors in this part of Alabama. Whether or not the Reverend Willie Maxwell was actually a voodoo priest, he lived in a community willing to believe that he was. Plenty of good Christians in Coosa County shook out their pillows at night and scrubbed their steps in the morning to fend off spirits and spells, warned their children that the hoodoo man would get them if they stayed out too late, and told their spouses that they would lay a trick on them if they did not stop drinking or lying or lying about drinking. Coincidence just wasn't a word that rolled off tongues in Alabama as easily as conjuring. So when Willie Maxwell was acquitted of murdering his first wife, and remarried the much younger widow of his conveniently deceased neighbor, a lot of people were convinced that he had used voodoo to fix the jury, put death on his neighbor's trail, and charm a much younger woman. Maybe the Reverend Maxwell had burned a court case candle or used law stay away oil. Perhaps he had nailed a photograph of his neighbor to the north facing side of a tree and added another nail every morning for nine mornings until the man weakened and died. As for the much younger, much prettier neighbor, well, he might have sprinkled wishing oil on a sample of her handwriting, worn it for nine days by his heart, and then buried it under his front steps. However unlikely such theories might seem, they were more comforting than the alternative. For many of the reverend's neighbors, it was better to believe that in the face of conjuring, there was nothing that law enforcement and the judicial system could do than to believe that in the face of such terrible crimes, they had not done enough. Supernatural explanations flourish where law and order fails, which is why as time passed and more people died, the stories about the Reverend grew stronger, stranger, and if possible, more sinister. The most widespread one began like a fairy tale with seven sisters and seven brothers. Willie Maxwell, people said, was the seventh son of a seventh son, a numerological curiosity that meant he had been born with power over life and death. To augment this natural gift, he supposedly went to New Orleans to study voodoo with the Seven Sisters, a fearsome septet well known throughout the South. Although their history and even their existence are disputed, stories about the sisters have circulated since the 1920s. They were said to be clairvoyant, ageless, and available to sell their blessings, curses, candles, and potions to anyone who came calling at their seven identical houses on Coliseum Street in the Garden District, any of you ever been to New Orleans? Did you go walking along Coliseum Street? Did you see these houses? So I just did this on my trip to New Orleans. You can, in fact, go and look, although I assure you none of what follows happened during my visit, and I assume not on yours either. <laughs> Out-of-state license plates were always pulling up there, and people came and went at all hours of the day and night. Some of the visitors were just customers, but others were said to be disciples including, supposedly, one lean, elegant, well-dressed man from Coosa County, Alabama. Never mind for a minute that the Reverend Willie Maxwell actually had just four brothers, plus four numerologically inconvenient sisters. The rumors about him continued to grow taller than the loblolly pines around Lake Martin. He hung white chickens upside down from the pecan trees outside his house to keep away unwanted spirits. He painted blood on his doorsteps to keep away the authorities. He carried envelopes filled with deadly powders. He had a whole room just for voodoo, lined with jars labeled love, hate, friendship, and death. If he got sick, 
He drank someone else's blood to feel better. Drive by his front door and the headlights of your car would go dark. Say a cross word against him and he would lay a trick on you. Look him in the eye and he would curse you forever. He could move faster than was humanly possible, traveling, traveling the 150 miles from Birmingham to Atlanta in 20 minutes. If he needed to vanish quicker than that, he could turn into a black cat. I should say, lest you think those kinds of rumors were just offered to the nice reporter who came down from Maryland, one of my favorite facts about Harper Lee's time in town when she was trying to write her own book about this case is that she adopted a stray cat while she was there and she started calling it Reverend Maxwell because those rumors were already part of the narrative and part of what people would say and part of the things when you ask them about the Reverend Maxwell, why they were so afraid or why they were so convinced that he had committed these crimes, they would offer up stories like that. And that was already happening in the 70s. And I like to read that passage, um, not to make light of voodoo or any other kind of rural Superstition, in fact, I think, um, to my mind, some of the most interesting research I got to do was, was into systems of belief like voodoo. And they are legitimate and they are popular and they are still lived by a lot of practitioners in the Deep South and, and around the country and around the globe, frankly. And I'm sure if you think for a minute, there's some superstition you have from your own childhood or from wherever you grew up. Or you know, if you've read To Kill a Mockingbird, obviously the figure of Boo Radley is a kind of hoodoo man, right? Who instilled fear and you know, encouraged people to spread stories about him. But um, I just like to sit down for a minute in 1972 because it's otherwise inexplicable what goes on to happen in this book, because the reverend who is ultimately accused, although never convicted of any of these crimes, is accused of killing not just one wife, but a second, a brother, a nephew, a stepdaughter, possibly a neighbor. And you know, in hindsight, lots of things look a certain way, but especially crimes. And if you actually try and walk yourself through that chronology, you can appreciate the fear and terror and uncertainty of what it was like to live through this especially if you were part of the community that was being terrorized by these crimes. And so what happens in, in 1977 after that stepdaughter, a 16-year-old, is found dead, um, at her funeral, the reverend is gunned down by another relative of hers. He's shot three times in a funeral home with 300 people there. And that act of vigilante justice, the reason I like to read that voodoo business is because I think it is one of the only ways to understand the articulated motives of the man who murdered the reverend. Because what he would tell you, and, and part of what happens in the book is you get to sit through his trial and you get to hear the defense that his lawyer offered. What he would say is he was terrified of who might be next. And he was convinced after seven years that the police would continue to not be able to hold this man responsible for these crimes and that no one would punish the reverend and he felt he had had to commit this act of vigilante justice and you know that's very interesting and you get to sit down in the trial but the um, thing you, you need to know about that murder case is the man who defended the vigilante is the same man who for about a decade had been defending the reverend. So the same lawyer who had represented the Reverend in all of these criminal trials and um, all of these criminal investigations had also um, represented him over a dozen times in court um, in some civil litigation. So the purported motive for these crimes was um, very lucrative life insurance policies that all of the Reverend Maxwell's family um, were insured for at the time of their death, almost all of which he was the beneficiary of. Um, and perhaps the most divisive part of this book is what I, I promise you um, is, is only a few pages of the history of life insurance. Some people love it, some people hate it. You have my permission to skip it if you find it you know, boring and reminds you too much of you know, whatever you studied in college, but it's just a few pages and I, I think they're pretty darn interesting, but I also think, again, it's important to understand how these policies were executed, you know, because you might well wonder, why didn't the insurance companies catch on? You know, what, what was happening? And, and part of what was happening was a very good lawyer was taking these insurance companies to court on behalf of the reverend. Um, so, so Tom Radney, who was rather well known in this part of the, the country for being a kind of, um, you know, before liberal hearts bled, a bleeding heart liberal. You know, he's a Kennedy Democrat who had, um, 
you know, the year of the 1968 Democratic Convention, which when most Alabamians were hoping George Wallace would get the Democratic nomination, and even went so far as to support George Wallace in a third party run, Tom Radney went to that convention in Chicago and nominated Teddy Kennedy, <laughs> and you know, got on TV to say as much, and um, so had been very reviled for his politics, and, and he um, had served in the state legislature, and he ran for lieutenant governor, but when he gave up on the politics, he really dug into small town law, and so he liked hard cases, long shots, and not surprisingly, having succeeded for so many years representing the reverend, he was then the lawyer who took the case of the vigilante who shot him. Um, and you know, no one was more surprised by that probably than the vigilante, this man Robert Burns, who obviously did not want to be convicted of murder, but was slightly suspicious that the reverend's own attorney might not be you know, a zealous advocate on his behalf, although you'll see um, it's kind of a moment in the book where mostly time has passed quickly, I assure you, in that you know, the, the bits about life insurance, you go from the Roman Empire back to 20th century Alabama in four pages. So again, this is like an accordion, time's going quickly and slowly, but the trial of Robert Burns is so fascinating that I, that I try and give it to you at a slightly slower pace. So again, you can imagine what you might have done if you were on that jury. And it might not be as obvious as it seems how you might have decided. You know, there are very strong arguments put forward by the district attorney about law and order and how extrajudicial justice leaves us all vulnerable to vigilantism. And then there are very good arguments put forward by the defense about Robert Burns' state of mind at the time. And so I'd like to read to you a tiny bit from right before that trial gets going. So the Reverend is gunned down in June of 1977. And Tom Radney, this lawyer who's represented the Reverend for 10 years, takes the case. And um, one way of putting it is he likes to win. Another way of putting it is he doesn't like to lose. And so he's taken this case and he's trying to figure out what defense he might offer for Robert Burns. So what I just read to you is 72. We've come forward five years. It's the summer of 77. In the weeks after the Reverend Maxwell's funeral, the temperature in Alexander City barely fell below 100 degrees. June's hot spell turned to July's heat wave. The hay fields that generally had two cuttings by midsummer hadn't yet had one. Cotton was a third of its usual height. The corn had dried up entirely, and most of the soybean crop hadn't even been sown. Dust devils swirled along the sides of the highways. The sun rose up every morning into an already smoldering day, scorched everything beneath it, and set into a stifling night. You know, the AC works too well in here. You guys can't even imagine what it was like in the summer of 77. I should have had them turn it off for some real atmosphere. But, you know, you guys, I guess you have enough humidity in the summer. You can imagine what it was like. Clouds occasionally formed and threatened, but the rains never came. By the third week of July, the drought was so severe that President Carter declared both Coosa County and Tallapoosa County, not to mention the rest of Alabama and Georgia, disaster areas. The heat that summer made the farmers crazy made the loggers crazy, made the mill workers crazy, basically made everyone crazy in town except for the Iceman and the kids down in Lake Martin. Which is how, one day, Big Tom Radney settled on his defense of Robert Burns. In the middle of July, when Burns was indicted by a grand jury, he did as Radney told him and pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Then Burns walked out of the courthouse in blue bib overalls and a Caterpillar baseball cap on a $10,000 bond. Insanity isn't an easy thing to prove, and it is often the defense of last resort. The belief that madness can be exculpatory is an ancient one, so ancient that it was carved into the code of Hammurabi 1,700 years before the birth of Christ, alongside the notion of proportional retaliation, lex talionis, an eye for an eye. But by the time Tom Radney invoked it, the insanity defense had been out of favor for a century. Queen Victoria had tried to stifle it in the mid-19th century out of fear that it was encouraging would-be assassins. A hundred years later, President Richard Nixon had the same idea. Too many defendants had turned out to be insane only until acquittal, and prosecutors and psychiatrists alike had come to worry that the defense was just a way of letting murderers get away with murder. Around the country, there were examples of defendants sent to state mental hospitals after a jury decided they were insane, only to have the hospital staff release them after diagnosing them as sane. In response, some states, Idaho, Kansas, Montana, and Utah, had already banned the insanity plea entirely. But Alabama still allowed it, and Big Tom decided that it was his best bet. In reality, it was probably his only bet. 
His client had brought a pistol into a chapel, shot a man three times in front of hundreds of people, and then confessed to the police not once, but twice. A first-year law student could have successfully prosecuted the case in his sleep. But Tom's opposing counsel in the murder trial of Robert Burns was not a first-year law student, to put it mildly. By the time the trial started, Thomas F. Young had already served 16 years as district attorney, and he was just starting another six-year term. He too went by Tom, and he was said to have tried more criminal cases than any other DA in Alabama history. Tom Young and Tom Radney had faced off in 50 or so other murder trials, and although both men had respected records, they had very different styles. Radney is silk and Young is sandpaper, Alvin Ben wrote in the Alexander City Outlook, the local newspaper. Ben himself was a man well acquainted with contrasts. This is as close to a local shout out as you guys get in this book. A Jewish reporter raised in Pennsylvania Amish country, he'd come <laughs> south to cover the civil rights movement and stayed to raise a family. Al Ben had listened nervously as KKK members denounced Zionist Jews at a rally but then took him out drinking afterward. He had interviewed the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and the police commissioner Bull Connor once for the same story. But even Ben had seldom seen two men diverge as dramatically as the two Toms. Tom Young wasn't about to lose a murder case when he had hundreds of witnesses, and Tom Radney wasn't about to lose a case with the whole state watching. Despite what pop boilers and Perry Mason might lead you to believe, Alvin Ben wrote in the paper, most trials resemble warmed over grits, and it takes some doing to stay awake. But the Robert Burns case was bound to be different. Now you can imagine all the reasons it was different, but of course the most salient one for our purposes tonight is Harper Lee was there listening. And that was, I think, for me, one of the most shocking facts when I, you know, people knew about her interest in this case. And if you had a chance, there was a biography that came out a few years ago of her and a memoir by a journalist who moved to Monroeville and got to know her and her sister. And this Maxwell business is mentioned in those books, but just a brief note of, oh, she got interested in this case. And, you know, it turned out she was more than interested. She moved to this town. She did a tremendous amount of research. She um, sunk a lot of time and money into acquiring the documents she needed and the transcripts she needed and doing extensive interviews and building all of the material the same way she had for Truman Capote when he was working on In Cold Blood. So in 1959 and then several subsequent trips, she went with him to Kansas and they undertook a similar investigation and that's the material that he made into In Cold Blood. And so this project in Alexander City when she found out about the Reverend was going to be her In Cold Blood. And she quite conspicuously went about getting all this information and all of these facts and quite conspicuously in town said, you know, I'm working on this nonfiction book. And you know, one of, the, one of the real joys in writing my book was inevitably when I would be interviewing someone who had been involved in the Maxwell case, that person might say, oh, the last time I talked about this was with Harper Lee. Or you know, midway through the conversation, they might say, oh gosh, you know, I remember when Harper Lee asked me these same questions. And there are a couple of instances like that where um, you know, if, you've, if you've read the book, then you know it's, I'm not in it much, the writer in this book is Harper Lee, so I don't tell you the kind of Nancy Drew reporting stories that some writers do, but I will say, if you look at the photographs, there's a copy of a $1,000 check that Harper Lee wrote the court reporter in this case, and that was one of those moments where truly sitting there you got goosebumps, because you realize not only had she interviewed this woman, but she was truly involved in the same kind of investigative work, and I like to read a passage from the Harper Lee section where it might be obvious to you if you've read it, but um, this is a character who sort of wrote herself into the book verbatim. She was such a tour de force. Um, I had been told that when Harper Lee was working on this project, The Reverend, she had interacted with one of Alabama's senators, and so that was very interesting to me, and I did what I often do when I get a tip like that. I wrote a very long, thorough letter to this person and said, you know, Dear Senator Allen, I understand you interacted with Harper Lee. I wrote it up in size 32 font because she was 91 years old. And you know, I indicated my publisher and my bona fides and gave her 10 ways to get back in touch should she choose to and all of this. And I got a phone call at midnight Maryland time, which is at least 11 p.m. Alabama time. But this 91-year-old wants to tell me this whole story of when she interacted with Harper Lee. And she was so convincing, there was kind of no way to do anything but let you meet her the way I did and let her tell the story of the time she talked to Harper Lee. Um, and I'm telling you all all of this because 
she wrote herself so thoroughly into the book that there are two curse words in what I'm about to read to you, and I assure you they came directly from Senator Allen. And I would say blame her, but she has subsequently died, so you can't even blame her. But if you are offended by that, which it's perfectly fine to be offended by that, I just want to warn you there are two curse words in what I'm about to read. Um, the only other note on this is this is a chapter, don't get nervous, I've been reading a long time, and it sounds like I'm about to read a lot. It's the shortest chapter in the book. Um, it's called Disappearing Act. And near the end, I'll tell you why that is, and you'll pick up on it. And if you know anything about Harper Lee, you can probably already guess why it's called Disappearing Act. But um, this is the, the first chapter of the Harper Lee section of the book. So again, if you're in it for Harper Lee, just skip ahead to part three, and you can go back and read the rest. If you're too impatient to wait for Harper Lee, I assure you she comes back up. But you can just flip past the photos, and there's your Harper Lee business. But. Tom Radney and the Reverend Maxwell are both incredibly interesting. And if you want to understand anything about Harper Lee's work on this case, why it was hard for her, why she was interested, you really need to know those other two characters first. And you need to have the TikTok of the case. So that's my argument for doing it, but I'm a pragmatist. You can skip ahead and then go back and read it. It was the damnedest thing, but Marianne Pittman Allen couldn't find a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird anywhere in Washington. Mrs. James Browning Allen was the second wife of the junior senator from the great state of Alabama. And in that role, she was expected not only to attend the ladies of the Senate luncheon, but to present the first lady of the United States, Rosalind Carter, with a book representative of her home state. It was obvious to Allen which book she should bring, since there was no Alabama tale more famous than the one about the adventures of a tomboy named Scout and her heroic lawyer of a father, Atticus Finch. But even though there were millions of copies of Nell Harper Lee's novel in circulation at the time, Allen couldn't find a single one for sale in the nation's capital. They did not have a Midtown Scholar, obviously. I think they even have copies by the counter if you want to refresh your memory. Um, Allen was Lee's age, and they had both dropped out of the University of Alabama around the same time. Lee had been a student at the law school and quit to write. Allen had been a journalism student and quit to have children. Her first marriage didn't take and she had three mouths to feed, so she began working as a reporter for a handful of newspapers around Birmingham. That's how she met her second husband, who was then Lieutenant Governor James Browning Allen, a widower with two children of his own. She heard church bells on her way to interview him for a story and prayed that it wasn't a sign, but four months later they were married, and four years after that they were moving to Washington for him to take his seat in the United States Senate. Allen didn't like to make a big production out of her role as a lady of the Senate, but she also didn't want to embarrass her husband or her home state, so she was determined to bring the right gift to Mrs. Carter. When she couldn't find the book, she went looking for its author. Allen knew that she and Lee had a mutual friend from their Tuscaloosa days, and she thought that he might know how to get a hold of the author. Nearly everyone in the state would have recognized John Forney's voice, and the half who were Alabama fans basically thought it was the voice of God. I'm waiting for a laughter because it tells me if there are any Alabamian expats in the crowd. That joke plays very well there. John Forney had been calling the play-by-play -play for the Crimson Tide for over a decade. I gotta, it's just, I gotta stop reading this because it just does not play well outside of the Deep South. <laughs> Actually, it doesn't play well if you're in Alabama. It plays well over towards Tuscaloosa, but when you get over to Auburn, people are like, why is she insulting us by bringing up the Crimson Tide? John, Allen said when the sportscaster answered, do you know where Nell Lee is? I've simply got to find a copy of her book. After she explained why, Forney, Forney told her that Lee was in Alexander City. Allen knew Alex City well. Her first husband had been born and raised there. In the years when her own father was building levees on the Mississippi River and living with her mother in a tent on its banks, her ex-father-in-law had been hobnobbing in the Alabama State Senate. After that, Jay Sanford Mullins had gone to Alex City to serve for more than three decades as the town's attorney. As best as Alan could remember, the most exciting thing that had ever happened around Lake Martin was her ex-father-in-law climbing into the bed of a pickup truck to deliver one of his speeches, unfailingly fiery numbers that could draw an audience from three counties. But the oratorical wizard of Chanahatchee Creek had long since died, and she couldn't imagine what would entice a world-famous author to Tallapoosa County. What in the world, Alan asked Forney incredulously, is she doing in Alex City? Lee was there writing, Forney said, and if Alan could give him a little time, he would try and get in touch with her. 
A few hours later, John Forney called back and said that he had tracked Harper Lee down at the Horseshoe Bend Motel. Maybe she knew it. It was that hexagon-shaped number out on Highway 280. He had been given the go-ahead to give her the writer's private telephone number there. It was like she was hiding behind damn trees down there, Alan remembers. But I got the secret number, and then we talked for over an hour. They talked about small-town lawyers, since Alan wondered if Lee knew anything about her ex-father-in-law. And they talked about journalism, since Lee was a regular reader of Alan's syndicated newspaper column, Reflection of a News Hen. When Alan finally got around to asking why Harper Lee was hanging her hat in Alex City, the author wouldn't say much, just that she had been there for a few months, working on something that had to do with a voodoo preacher. Lee did say, though, that she would make sure a copy of her novel got to the nation's capital by May 15, 1978, in time for the luncheon. True to her word, Lee sent a signed first edition of her book inscribed on the front page to Rosalind Carter, along with a verse from one of the hymns to wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. Mrs. Allen presented the book to Mrs. Carter at the Ladies of the Senate luncheon, which, as it happens, was the last one of those she would ever attend. Two weeks later, after she and her husband had returned to Alabama for the summer recess, Senator James Browning Allen died of a heart attack. Not long after that, Governor George Wallace appointed Marianne Pittman Allen to her husband's seat, making her the state's second female senator. Overwhelmed both personally and professionally, she forgot all about the Pulitzer Prize winner holed up at the Horseshoe Bend Motel. It was easy to forget, enough, to forget about Harper Lee in those days. To Kill a Mockingbird had come out 18 years before, and in all that time, Lee had published almost nothing else. Three short essays for two glossy magazines, two tiny profiles that were, friends, that were favors for her friend Truman Capote, one satirical recipe for crackling bread in a novelty cookbook. In nearly two decades, that was the only writing that she had put into the world. No second novel had followed the first, and she hadn't given an interview in 14 years. The last time she had so much as agreed to be quoted in print was another favor for Truman Capote. In 1976, he had asked Lee to sit with him during an interview for People magazine, which was running a profile of him. She had said a total of 12 words on the record, seven of which were, we are bound by a common anguish. To Kill a Mockingbird had made Lee extravagantly wealthy, but you wouldn't have known it to look around her life. When she was in New York, she lived in a small rent-controlled apartment on the Upper East Side. When she went home to Alabama, she stayed with one of her sisters in a modest brick ranch house in their hometown of Monroeville. No matter where she was, she avoided the press, her fans, and anything that seemed too literary. She tried to live her life as if she had never published one of the most popular novels in American history. In 1962, the year the film adaptation of her book came out, the one that earned Gregory Peck an Oscar, and further fixed her portrait of a small southern town in the nation's collective memory, Lee told a reporter for the Mobile Register that she wanted to disappear, and she basically had. But now, alone in a motel in the middle of nowhere, with the world no longer watching, she was nearly as free as she had been in the tiny flat where she had written To Kill a Mockingbird. That was what she chose not to tell Marianne Pittman Allen that day on the telephone. Harper Lee was in Alexander City because finally, all these years later, she was going to write another book. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so that's the cliffhanger, and I, I hope that you'll sit with the book, and um, I hope you'll sit with Harper Lee's life. She's obviously a writer. We, we all know her work, and um, bits and drabs of her life have come into the public eye over the years, but um, I'm happy to answer questions about her life or about the original case um, or about her work on the case, but I do hope, even if you think you know Harper Lee, that you enjoy getting to sit with her um, in the prime of her life. I think one of the things that's most exciting about this Maxwell case business is that she's really in her prime and she's energized and excited and brings a tremendous amount of ambition to the project and leaves quite an impression on the folks around Lake Martin who she interacted with. So again, happy to take questions about her, about the Reverend Maxwell, about Tom Radney, about anything that's not you know too much of a stumper because again, my family's here, don't embarrass me too much. If you have a question, just raise your hand and I'll come around with the wireless mic. We've got two questions over there. What was 
the reason the Rev Reverend Maxwell was shot, was killed? Why was he killed? Um, so, um, I mean, there's a kind of existential why does anything happen, and I can't begin to speculate about that one, um, although, you know, fun to do in the kind of cosmological sense of why anything happens. But um, the man who shot the Reverend both during the trial and after, um, and even today, Robert Burns is alive, and we'll talk about what happened. Um, he will tell you that he was very close to Shirley Ann um, and that her death was extremely traumatizing for him, both in the kind of specificity of her as a person. He loved her a great deal. She was young. She was in the prime of her life. Um, she had wanted to become a doctor. She had wanted to move away from Alabama. All of that was exciting to him. He'd known her for several years. And um, beyond that, though, you know, in that voodoo passes, you get a sense of the fear and hysteria around this case, and no one knew who the Reverend had insurance policies on. And it turns out that some of their suspicions were, were well-founded. I quote a letter in the book where um, a single insurance company terminating the policies that they alone hold with the Reverend Maxwell, it was 17 of them, and it included aunts, uncles, his mother, an infant child he had just legitimated. So a large number of people were, were potential victims, as it were. And so what Robert Burns would say is he didn't know who was next. He had other nieces who lived in close proximity to the Reverend. Um, his brother was the Reverend. If you can believe it, there was a third Mrs. Maxwell, and she had previously been married to Robert's brother. And so he was worried about his brother. He was worried about his other nieces and nephews. And to his mind, the reverend had gotten away with many crimes, and it was time for someone to hold him responsible. Now, you know, a, a parallel question to that one, and I just, again, want to say that the reverend was never convicted of any of these crimes. Um, and obviously, one of the dynamics at play in that trial is the reverend had a family of his own. Now, some of those people were you know, named in these insurance policies, and it was a fraught familial situation. But obviously, there were people who grieved the reverend. And the third Mrs. Maxwell was there when he was gunned down, and um, they had children they were raising. So you know, the reverend's funeral was very well attended, not just by kind of curiosity seekers, people who wanted to see if he was really dead, but by siblings, his mother was alive, his own widow, and um, so you know, on the one hand, it's 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 perfectly reasonable, and indeed the book takes seriously the rationale put forward by Robert and the kind of legal defense put forward by his legal team. But um, you know, obviously, there was another side to that story, just as there is to to any other. Okay, um, my best friend is an English teacher and teaches To Kill a Mockingbird, and is on vacation this week, so she asked me to ask this question. Oh, <laughs> oh, no. This is like actually a test. This is what they tell you will never happen at an author event. Someone tries to quiz you, but okay. Uh, how, did the, how did you come up with the idea to frame the events with history, like building the dam, uh, uh, to create the time for the minister, and using politics of the time for the attorney? Sure, that's a really great question. So that's a way of warning you if you're, um, not a reader of um, promiscuous narrative nonfiction, which is to say narrative nonfiction that is interested in a lot of different genres. This is not a book where it reads kind of one way from the beginning to the end. It actually does, because I'm the writer, I'm the only one who wrote it, so it has my sensibility running through it, but there are a lot of different kinds of ideas and themes at work. And so obviously the first section about the Reverend Maxwell is very interested in religion and superstition. So you get a little bit of the history of voodoo, you get a little bit of the history of the Baptist church, you get a little bit of hydroelectric history. Um, now it's starting to sound a bit like an encyclopedia. I promise you they're well done, although, yeah, I, I, I like to think it's all materially relevant and that hydroelectric business, for instance, isn't just because I like John McPhee, it's because that dam, the dam that dammed the Tallapoosa River and made Lake Martin, which at the time was the largest man-made lake in the entire world, tens of thousands of acres of water, that dam completely changed where the Reverend Maxwell was born and raised. And it, it made a different landscape. It led to the mechanization of this region. It's why the cotton mills boomed the way they did. It's why people like the Reverend Maxwell, um, you know, these incredibly rural lives that had been tied to sharecropping, suddenly they were more urban and they had more economic opportunities. So Lake Martin is important for that reason. And that's just to warn you, you learn a lot about the area, not just the particular characters. And the reason for that, um, aside from, kind of the way my brain works is um, 
it is a complete homage to one Miss Nell Harper Lee. So I'm sure your friend, the English teacher, appreciates one of the reasons we all love To Kill a Mockingbird so much is that it takes us deep inside the sensibility of a few characters, but it really lets you get to know Maycomb County and Maycomb as a town. And as far as anyone's concerned in the Finch family, you can never know what's happening today if you don't know what happened you know, during the Battle of Hastings. <laughs> You know, if you don't go back generation after generation and you don't think about the larger structural forces that shape any given life and the larger histories that circumscribe the way we think about things. And so for, to, to my mind, in some ways, this is a book probably quite similar to the one Harper Lee would have written. There's no way she wouldn't have told you about the Tallapoosa River. There's no way she wouldn't have told you about kind of Wallace-era politics. Um, a lot of her section of the book is built from letters she was writing to people about her work on this case, and some of the best ones are the letters she wrote to Gregory Peck. So they stayed very close after To Kill a Mockingbird, and in fact, when she caught on to the Reverend Maxwell's story, she told him she would soon have a new role for him. Um, so hard to know, you know, she joked that maybe he would be playing a Baptist preacher, but I assume she actually thought he'd play a version of the lawyer, and you know, it's not just the kind of motivations for people, but it really is what was going on in Alabama at the time. And obviously this case has a lot of very complicated racial dynamics to it, and not just in the obvious ways of how black-on-black -black crime was policed or the kind of racial biases of the criminal justice system, even that life insurance business, so again, I'm now you know, beating a dead horse, but I promise you, it's very interesting business. You might just think the reverend was, and if you read that, thing Michael Lewis wrote about the book, you might just think, oh, he was manipulating a financial market. But the life insurance industry at that time was itself a bad actor. So actually, one of the most interesting lawyers in the book is this guy, Fred Gray. He's one of the most distinguished civil rights lawyers in, the, in Alabama's history. He represented Martin Luther King on the tax evasion case. He represented Rosa Parks during the bus boycott. Fred Gray actually defended the Reverend Maxwell. And it is because he was bringing a civil rights case, what he felt was a civil rights case against one of these predatory insurance companies, which was charging black clients more selling them substandard policies, in many instances refusing to pay out. And so even though the Reverend Maxwell was a very unlikely poster boy for civil rights, it was actually one of these kind of necessary cases to bring because you could render plain the kinds of discrimination and biases at work in the life insurance industry. So I'd like to think the book is in that way kind of deeply in conversation with Harper Lee. But, um, the Eastern Shore isn't so far from here, so I'll let you guys in on another secret, which is it's just the way I was taught to tell stories. You never go the most direct way. You always take the scenic route, and you always you know, bring in somebody's second cousin or somebody's great-grandpa or what the farm used to be before they bought it, and it just feels like the way to kind of bring real life to life. Um, so great question, but one I hope that sends her right back to Mockingbird or reminds her of things she likes about it. Yeah. Um, thank you for coming out. I never like, like heard the inside of a mind of an author yet. Um, not a not a representative one. I'm sure Alex will tell you there are some other more interesting authors coming through. <laughs> no, but you're lit, yeah, you're, you're stuck lit. with me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to know what was the most uh, like interesting uh, with all those things you said about the Reverend. What was the most interesting like uh, folklore? Boy, that's a great question. Um, so it's, it's not one single fact. So the reverend, obviously, there's this whole kind of, call it legitimate religion. It's the religion you know. It's Southern Baptist. It's um, Primitive Baptist. And it's the kind of history of American Christianity you probably encountered if you've ever read one of these histories of American Christianity. But alongside of that is this hoodoo and voodoo and root working. And those were, you know, belief systems, there's no evidence he actually participated in, but because of these accusations, I felt like I had to tell you that it was possible for someone like the Reverend to be involved in them. And when I was looking into all of that, there are a couple of really fascinating books. Um, there's some great scholarship now. The truth is those kinds of rural superstitions um, in both the white and the black, but especially in the black community, were not taken seriously by early anthropologists or scholars. Um, so I was lamenting that fact and really looking around and then learned that, um, do you guys know Zora Neale Hurston? Do you know this African-American novelist? Um, their eyes were watching God, Jonah's gourd. So Zora Neale Hurston actually trained as an anthropologist and um, she had a mentor who was 
a real pioneer in field work. And so um, she wrote two nonfiction collections of folklore. One is about Haiti, and one is just about the American South. And she, you know, drove down to, um, she's from Florida, but she'd actually been born in Alabama. She's born in Natasalga, which is one of the little towns where the Reverend preached. So there's this intersection between the two of them. But Zora Neale Hurston, because she was black, because she was able to meet people where they were and per persevere in getting their stories, there's just tremendous collections of her folklore. So it's not any one story, although there are great songs and stories and kind of superstitions about how you could kill someone or what materials you needed. You know, there are all these black cat bones and, you know, the eye of a goat and gopher dust and, you know, graveyard dirt. Those are all fun to read, those kinds of spells and recipes and remedies and things. But um, just the idea that she's one of the reasons we have access to that is tremendously interesting to me. And it's like Harper Lee. You know, when you learn about this true crime project, you take a writer you love and you learn something else about what interested them, and of course, Zora Neale Hurston would go on to use so much of that material in the novels we already love. So if you never looked at those two folklore collections, um, they're, they're quite interesting, and they're quite a lot of fun to read, and um, you heard me make use of some of them without kind of drawing attention to that fact when, when I tell you that, um, you know, you could sprinkle a certain kind of dust on someone's front doorsteps or if you took a sample of their handwriting and you know you wore it for nine days, they might fall in love with you. There are all these really sweet and interesting kind of hoodoo charms and spells and things, and a lot of those are in the Hurston. But I think just the idea that you know her scholarship is one of the reasons we know anything about early American spirituality in the South is just its own kind of fascination of history. So great question. Question in the fourth row. Um, you might not want to reveal this, but one of the things that I <laughs> I thought about while sitting here was, did the reverend have life insurance on himself? Can you self-insure? Um, so, yeah, so did he have policies for which other people were the beneficiaries? Um, yes, now they're not, some of them weren't life insurance. So when he married the second Mrs. Maxwell, and again, I. It's one of these things that's funny even if you're trying to be very serious about it all, but so there are three Mrs. Maxwells. The second Mrs. Maxwell um, had mortgage insurance, so in the event that she died before, you guys probably all have these, you look like very upstanding, responsible citizens, so you have life insurance and mortgage insurance. So that policy became the reverend's when she died, so technically on his death it paid off the mortgage. So the third Mrs. Maxwell did not, was not left with a mortgage on the home. Um, and as best I know, there were at least two other life insurance policies um, for which the third Mrs. Maxwell would have been the beneficiary. But the actual thing to know about who had insurance on the reverend, I mentioned this guy who worked with him in the pulp wooding business. So pulp wooding is a very particular facet of the timber industry in the South, and it was um, very low barriers to entry. So you didn't have to have like a lot of equipment to do it, and so a lot of entrepreneurial men like the reverend just needed a truck, a couple of saws, and then they could get started, and they would cut down these eight-foot sections, and then they would drive them just in pickups and small logging trucks to pulp mills, and those pulp mills made paper pulp. So, you know, newsprint, uh, paper bags and things. And one of the managers of one of those timber companies, when I went and interviewed him, you know, he's telling me stories about the Reverend, and with, with, without my asking, he said, well, you know, I had life insurance on the Reverend. And I said, really? And then he, of course, revealed the straightforward fact that a lot of employers have insurance on their employees. So he used to go around joking that he wasn't worried about the Reverend because he was one of the only people to have insurance on the Reverend himself. <laughs> so, yeah, but those policies, I mean, it's all quite interesting. And um, do any of you remember, you used to be able to get life insurance at the airport? Like before you got on a plane, you could just put a quarter. So the thing to know, first of all, the book is not a how-to. You cannot get away with this stuff anymore. Much the same way you can't get those policies anymore. That ended when someone bombed a plane after taking out policies on the passengers. So a lot of these are remedied. You know, it's like any industry. The, the industry is responsive to fraud. So once someone gets away with some, something, they then try and keep the rest of us from getting away with it. And so nowadays, if you go to get an insurance policy, you know, you have to have the person's, not only their social security number, but their consent. And the company undertakes a medical exam and they notify that person that you were attempting to execute a policy. Um, none of those protections or regulations, um, even where they existed, were very much enforced in the 1970s. So that's why the Reverend could have 
17 policies with the same company on so many family members, almost none of whom even knew. He was just using his own correspondence address, and once he got their social security number, he never told them he just took out the policy. Um, so you can't do it anymore, and there's been real reform and regulation, but it was tremendously common at the time. There's another Willie Maxwell in the book who I thought might be the Reverend Willie Maxwell who committed insurance fraud in Florida, who's born the same month, the same year, different Willie Maxwell was just that common. So, you know, it was really, the insurance companies had a hard time, you know, building a database where they could see how many policies any in individual had, um, making sure that they were not, um, you know, illegitimately executed. So again, these provisions whereby you have to have insurable interest on the person and that person has to, you know, sign their consent to be insured and that sort of business. So it doesn't work that way anymore, but um, it was lucrative at the time. I haven't read your book yet, but I will, I promise you. Ah. Uh, but I, I noticed in advertising your book that they talk about Harper Lee and the story of an Alabama serial killer. I've read that. Mm -hmm. Now, would the Reverend actually fit the profile of a serial killer? So, two answers to that question. So the first is the language of serial killer was not much in use at the time, so no one did, strictly speaking. So there was still, you know, these were early days for the kind of diagnostic language. You guys have probably all, there are now multiple documentaries and histories of, you know, these kind of um, special departments of the FBI and the CIA and international crime agencies as well. And so it was not much in use, although 77 is the summer of Sam. So the idea of serial murders, so someone committing the same crime in rapid succession, possibly with the same motive, was getting currency. And with the Reverend, it's not so much a kind of spree killing, you know, of the kind of you know, Son of Sam, or any one of those kind of more famous and more cause celeb killers. Um, but it is actually the case that these crimes do fit the category of serial killer. We're just not much, we are not often primed to think of motive as the common denominator, but all of these crimes were similar individuals, so members of his own family, and for the same motive, and actually undertaken with the same means. So one of the reasons, if you talk to investigators who work these cases today, they're quite certain that the Reverend was involved in all of them, is not only that he held insurance on the deceased individuals, but quite often they were found under identical circumstances. So they were in cars that were staged to look like accidents. There was, um, little distress to the body after the first Mrs. Maxwell. So again, these were you know, causes of death inconsistent with the stage accident scene. So it broadly speaking fits that category, but the, the real problem is it's just kind of anachronistic for the time. No one was going around calling anyone a serial killer. You know, that language had just kind of entered the bureau like in the late 60s and it just wasn't being popularly applied yet. But you know, obviously we refer to Jack the Ripper as a serial killer. We, we have gone back in time to apply it to these other cases. So I think I think the ways in which that's accurate, even if no one would have used that language at the time, is the consistency of the crime scenes, the relationship to the victims, and the common motive across all six of these. We had a couple questions. Of, whoa, okay. Thank you for being here. Um, I'm an educator as well and have the privilege of teaching To Kill a Mockingbird every year. And we can, you know, I can talk to my students about the biographical data of, of Harper Lee, but what do you feel students should know about Harper Lee before they read To Kill a Mockingbird? What age do you teach? High school. Um, you know, what do I think they should know? I mean, I'm a pretty big proponent of new historicism. You know, I think that artists are a creature of their time. So this is this kind of literary theory that, you know, if you're gonna go and read Gerard Manley Hopkins, you ought to know something about the Jesuits in the day and age in which he was a Jesuit. You know, our knowledge of his work is aided by a knowledge of his time frame and context. And that's very meaningful to me. Um, it's not essential and obviously there are, there's a kind of integrity and aesthetic value to work that transcends time. It's why we still read To Kill a Mockingbird, even though it's not 1960. You know, it speaks to our day and age, even though decades have passed. But I do think that, you know, reading that book is, you are rewarded when you are reading that book if you understand something about American race relations in the 60s, even though it is set in the 1930s. And for your students, even if they never read Ghosts at a Watchman, just out of curiosity, how many people here read Ghosts at a Watchman? Okay, um, even if your students never read Go Set a Watchman, 
It's important for them to realize Harper Lee was not writing about her own childhood in the 1930s during the Great Depression. She was writing about the 1930s and the 1960s and mindful of the kinds of racial changes that were happening in the country and mindful of the way that any given moral dilemma can be representative of a kind of cultural dilemma. So the trial of Tom Robinson is itself significant for the role the changing role of the criminal justice system, right? And I think that if you if you just read the novel and you're just consumed by the kind of worldview of Scout, which is very compelling and very interesting, and the way in which you know her subjectivity can be universal, you miss out on the opportunity to actually talk about the kind of change that had happened between when Harper Lee was a child during the Great Depression and when Harper Lee was a young novelist trying to figure out how to write about the past in 1960. Um, so yeah, I think they want to know something about that context. I think they want to know something about gender. I think if for the folks who read Ghost at a Watchman, it's extremely interesting to think about Harper Lee, you know, the female novelist trying to be Faulkner, trying to be Baldwin, trying to be, you know, these big male Richard Wright, trying to reckon with a kind of masculine vision of the South and writing this gendered story of childhood. Um, and, and that's all rendered a little more explicit in Ghost at a Watchman because she's wrestling with the idea she doesn't want to get married and she's thinking about how she doesn't like to wear dresses and it's a little more subtle in To Kill a Mockingbird. We just use language like tomboy and that sort of business but um, it's more conspicuous in Ghost at a Watchman and that only makes sense. I can't imagine if you're a child today wondering you know, why were little girls made to wear dresses at the time. It's just, it's, it's not... I got to laugh in a way that maybe someone thinks is still more relevant today than it is. But, you know, those kinds of pressures on Jean Louise Finch only make sense if you say to them, well, you know, at the time, this was the kind of circumscribed role for women, and it would have been very brave for someone like Jean Louise, or again, the utility of biography, it would have been very brave of someone like Harper Lee to pick up and leave a small town in Alabama and move to Manhattan. 1949, it was a very different world than the one she'd grown up in. Um, and not just for race relations, reasons, for gender relations as well. Um, so there's a lot more to that. I'd be happy to talk more. Um, I think it's one of the things, I don't, I don't know about you all, but I, I loved To Kill a Mockingbird when I was a kid and read it over and over again just because I liked the character of Scout. Um, but I was spared for a very long time the actual kind of context of a story like that. And the, um, it was presented to me as kind of anomalous. And of course now with, do you guys know the Equal Justice Initiative? Brian Stevenson's, if you read Just Mercy, this tremendous book, if you haven't read it, you should. Brian Stevenson has been engaged in this racial reconciliation work in Alabama, including in Monroe County, where Harper Lee was from, building monuments to the victims of lynchings and to racial violence. And you know the, the sad truth is there were many Tom Robinsons and there were many men falsely accused and many men who were, um, lynched or, or killed in extrajudicial ways. And so I think that that's all tremendously important and helps you understand the novel more and even appreciate how subtle it is. And I think high school students are very much equipped to think about that and to think about the relationship to the kind of contemporary world we live in too. But um, in case you forgot, you know, there is another episode of Vigilante Justice in To Kill a Mockingbird. So one of the reasons I think she was so interested in this Maxwell case business is you will remember that Incredibly quickly at the end of the novel, Atticus is convinced by Sheriff Tate not to prosecute Boo Radley, not to take him to court for the, for the murder of Bob Yule. These men decide on a dark road together that it is in the best interest of the community not to even have a trial. And I think that Harper Lee's conscience was troubled by those kinds of decisions and the ways in which powerful people are able to shape the world by their own desires. It's part of the reason, just to remind you again why Lake Martin is important, those hydroelectric power projects were all powerful, wealthy people remaking the natural landscape for their own benefit. So I think it, it, it's the same kind of story about how power and violence can work. And you don't appreciate that if you just read Mockingbird and don't think about who Harper Lee was or what was going on in the United States at the time she wrote it. So sadly, we are running out of time. So we have time for just two more questions here. Um, oh, thank you. What was it that took you to this story? Why did you know this was oh, one yeah. you wanted to spend all this time? Yeah, I'm, I'm bad about doing that 
that question gets asked normally like right off the bat and I think, oh, I should have started with that. Um, so I told you I loved To Kill a Mockingbird as a kid and you wouldn't believe it now, but um, I had the same haircut as Mary Badham as a kid and I actually looked like Scout. So it was just this like over identification with this character and love the book. And I had always wanted to see Monroeville. So, you know, again, I love a biographical approach to literature. I don't think it's a kind of one-to-one -one relationship. Obviously, great literature is based in someone's life, but they make so much more of it. Many people grew up in Monroeville and never wrote a book like To Kill a Mockingbird, but I'd always wanted to see this town that was supposedly the basis for Maycomb. And so in 2015, when Ghost Had a Watchman was announced, um, I went down to report on that announcement for The New Yorker. Um, and my editor kind of gave me the chance to do like an armchair piece, like he knew I liked Harper Lee, and there was this question of would I just write, you know, a kind of piece that was like, what's up with Harper Lee? Did she write this book? Does she want it to be published? And I said, well, I'd really like to see Monroeville anyway, and let me go see what I can find out. Um, so I wrote a quick piece for The New Yorker about Ghost at a Watchman and that manuscript, but in an effort to learn more about her life, I got put in touch with the Radney family. And I was talking to one of Tom Radney's grandkids, and you know she gets to talking about the voodoo preacher who her grandfather defended, and um, then he defended the man who shot him, and you know Harper Lee came and talked to him about it, and you know I I like to joke you've got to be a pretty bad reporter to not just keep asking questions and say like tell me more about your grandfather and about this case, and um, pretty quickly when I started to look into it there were just a lot more people who she had interacted with than made sense for this, what had been kind of talked about as a brief effort. Um, and some correspondence turned up pretty quickly, um, written by her about this case. And um, just more and more, it just seemed like there was enough material and there was enough from the original story to write a book. You know, when, when you try to write a book like this, you have to make sure you can get enough facts. And it's actually one of the things that vexed Harper Lee about the case. She found it very hard. There was so much rumor and so much gossip, but so few facts. Um, so you go and you request court documents and birth certificates, death certificates, trial transcript, all of these things. And every time I asked for it, more and more of it turned up and it just seemed like there was enough for a book. So, but I got to it the way hopefully you all do too, which is you love Harper Lee and you wanna know more about her. And I thought, what a great opportunity to write, you know, some about an author I really love, but about this project that, you know, is again, her in her prime, her full of ambition. There had been so much writing about her end of life and about the kind of scandal of her estate in this business. And I thought this was such a great chance to look at her at the prime of her writing life when she had a very good idea for a book. I'm curious if you think um, Harper Lee was actually of sound mind when she um, allowed the release of Ghosts at a Watchman. What was the preface to your question, if you want to answer it? What was yours? You're not, you're not sure I want to disclose. Can I, can I invoke that preface <laughs> to the question? No, um, I don't mean to be coy. So I, um, I wrote about it. You can go and look. I wrote this piece for The New Yorker that was called... Um, Mysteries in Monroeville, um, because I think that there's a real difference. It actually relates to the Maxwell case. There's a real difference between what you suspect and what you can prove, and that's just as true on the pages of a magazine as it is in a court of law. Um, so what I think was not what I was able to write at the time, um, and you know, I pumped the bookstore at the start. Let me pump the New Yorker now. Keep reading the New Yorker. Not done reporting. <laughs> So I'll, I'll be coy only insofar as to say I'm not done reporting on that. Um, and I think that a lot of people, I think that a lot of people have um, reasonable questions about decisions that were made near the end of Harper Lee's life. But I will say that that makes it sound as if um, I don't think Watchmen is a legitimate manuscript. It very much is. And to the point of how educators should encounter it, I actually think that it's the rare opportunity um, I love um, Elizabeth Bishop. Do you guys know the poet Elizabeth Bishop? I quote a tiny bit of this sonnet Robert Lowell wrote about her. They were friends. Elizabeth Bishop, a few years ago, someone published a book, and it was the drafts and fragments and kind of rejected manuscripts of Elizabeth Bishop, which she would have abhorred. You know, they're, they're incomplete poems, and she was a total perfectionist. But it's a beautiful book, and you learn about her process as a writer, and that's what you get out of Ghost at a Watchman. It's not a sequel. It's not something she ever returned to. It is not her at the height of her powers is the first messy 
complicated, fraught book she ever wrote. And if you read it in that spirit, you can learn a lot about the revision process, about the relationship between a writer and an ed ed editor. It's almost like Maxwell Perkins and F. Scott Fitzgerald or Perkins and um, Hemingway. You just really get to see how an editor can help a writer make a better book than the one they drafted first. Um, so what I think about the decision to publish it is very different than, than the decision to read it, because it's in the world now, and you might as well come to appreciate how hard it is to write a book. You know, she wrote a bad draft that turned into a very beautiful novel. And if you can't bring, can't bear to read it, I will put it in a plug, too. Do you guys sell audiobooks? Can they buy them from you? cover your ears. The audiobook for Watchmen is extraordinary. It's read by Reese Witherspoon. And the failures of that novel, which is to say it kind of falls into a didactic series of debates and it's, it's not very lively. It opens in this really dramatic and lively way and it seems quite promising and then it flattens out into this debate about integration. The audio version is quite good because Reese Witherspoon really brings it to life and it's a lot more dramatic than it is on the page. So if you didn't read it because you started it and then thought, oh gosh, it's not really, you know, it's not as good as Mockingbird, um, put it on in the car sometime. It's quite good. She makes it even better than the text. Can we give it up for Casey? You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings. <laughs>